clock is accurate? Yeah. yeah. Wow. No. No. Ish. Ish. It's, what is uh, it's writing a bit. It's forty-two. Forty-two. Okay. So I thought we're gonna we're gonna do a Bible story. One of the classics. Come on, Annette, guess. Guess. It's Torah, It's going to be Torah. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. This week's part, and anything about. Nah, that would, that would, I wonder if we we're going to do a Bible story. Come on. I just said in this week's part, and then said something. Gracious. Gracious? Okay. You could do it. First half, second half. First half. How many questions does she get? <laughs> <laughs> <It's 20. laughs> no, no, no. You get two more, and then you're gonna have to guess. Abraham and Sarah. Something about them. No. Yeah. Oh, okay. Someone else guess. Kind of have No. Although I like doing kind of have It's my anti-vegetarian thing. Um, I know, so I can't do it again. But. Um, no, 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 no. We're gonna do about the snake in the Garden of Eden. Okay, so really beginning. Really beginning. Not, not really in the beginning, a little bit advanced, but, you know, day six of creation. Okay, so the basic rundown is God creates Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, um, and he puts them in the Garden of Eden, which, by the way, technical note, the Garden of Eden, where was it? Iraq and Iran. No. How do you know? How do you know? Someone else knows. Not in this <laughs> it was then. Where was it then? Between four rivers. The Garden of Eden. Where in was Eden. it? Outside. Oh, it was outside of Eden. It was outside of Eden. Where's Eden? I don't know. Nobody knows where Eden is. No, that's a different place. That's a different place. No one knows where Eden is. That's where you go when you go to exile. You go east of Eden. Anyway, no, it was called the Garden of Eden because it was nourished by a river, and the river had a spring from Eden, and the spring went out of Eden. The Euphrates River? No. Don't ask. After class, I'll explain to you the geography and all the problems involved. Okay. Is it Iraq, though, simply yes, no? Do you think, no. you know, do you know where it is? Okay, after class. Would you like to, I can tell you after class. I'll explain to you the geographic problems. Okay. Okay. Now, so you put them in the garden. Um, the garden was great, and there was two trees in the middle of the garden. One was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he said, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, lest... You die. Okay. And then, you know, there was also another tree in the garden, and that was the tree of life, the Eitzachayim. And then the snake comes to Chava. We're not going to worry so much about the whole gender dynamics of male, female, like who's responsible for this mistake um, for today's class. We all know the real. We're just point out. We're not. We're not getting involved. <laughs> anyway, I would. I would. I would just like to point out that the one being who was not asked, "What's your justification?" was the snake. The snake was just outright punished. Anyway, so then the snake goes to Chava and says, "Well, why don't you know? Are you allowed to eat from all the fruits of the garden?" She says, "Yes." So what about that one? And she says, "No." And he says, "Why?" She says, "Because we're not allowed to." because we'll die if we eat. And the snake says, no, that's not true. The real reason is because if you eat from the tree, then you'll be like God and you'll know good and evil. And then she looked at it and she said, you know, you're right, you have a point. It does look like a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then she ate from it 
And then she gave it to her husband, Adam, and he ate from it. And then they knew good and evil. And then fast forward, God kicks them out of the garden because he's afraid that they're going to eat from the tree of life. And what would be so bad if they lived from the tree of life? They live forever. Which was kind of the reason why God didn't want them to eat. Right. So there's a few things that don't make sense. Number one, number one, if God wanted them to live forever, if God wants them to live forever and eating from the tree of knowledge is going to kill them, which it does, that's why we die, then eating from the tree of life would seemingly be the solution to this problem. So why is God kicking them out so that they don't live forever? Like that was the thing you wanted to prevent... You wanted them to live forever. That's why you didn't want them to eat, the tree, to eat from the tree of knowledge. And now that they've eaten from the tree of knowledge, they're going to die. The remedy would be to eat from the tree of life and to live forever. But no, you kick them out so they can't live forever. That's very hard to understand. And what's more difficult is the snake. Who is right in this whole story? God or the snake? The snake. Because God said, if you eat from it, you'll die. And the snake said, no, if you eat from it, you'll be like, you'll know good and evil. And then they ate from it and they knew good and evil. And God actually says, they're like me. They know good and evil. So it seems like God was misleading them. The snake was wise. In fact, it strangely sounds like another story, which is not a Jewish story, about how the gods wanted to keep the knowledge of fire from people. Yes. And all the gods were really bad because they're trying to keep people ignorant. And then there was one being who, like, you know, informed people about the secret of how to make fire. And then voila. And here the snake is like, seems like, I mean, gives knowledge of good and evil. God can't have it, why can't we have it? Okay, so that's the basic story. I thought that um, they got in trouble because the snake said, or she said that, Eve said that we're not allowed to touch it. And the snake touched it. He's like, see, I touched it. Do you want, do you want, do you want, do you want my simple answer or my long answer? Oh, your simple one. Okay, my simple answer are different interpretations of the story. Good? Okay. All right. Now, so what we're going to do is we're going to first start talking, we're going to talk, off, uh, talk about this idea of knowledge of good and evil. Okay. Is having knowledge of good and evil a good thing or a bad thing? I realize that's a meta question. Well, it's like, it's like a, a situation. Mm-hmm. Well, so, and the thing is, if does God know about good and evil? That's what it says in the verses, right? That God knows about good and evil, so seemingly it's a good thing. But doesn't the knowledge create the reality? Does knowledge create... What do you like mean? Like their knowledge of it. So there was no evil before they knew about good and evil? Not in the, like, regular sense. I don't know what regular sense is. Like, I can wave my hands also. That doesn't help you understand what you mean. <laughs> like, I was under the impression <laughs> that the only evil was in the snake. It wasn't no, within them. It wasn't within them. And that's what brought, like, once they ate from the tree. Well, I don't know. Why, why was the evil in them? Like, what, is, what does that mean? Like, God knew about evil. Was there evil in God? Well, yeah, everything's God. So, no. <laughs> Come on. Okay. So here's the thing. We need, we, we, we need, we need a little bit of, of depth here. Okay. Knowledge, as it exists by human beings, has two intrinsically linked components. How many intrinsically components? Two. Very good. I like when people pay attention. One is awareness. Awareness means that the way something it is, the reality of something, 
is represented clearly and accurately in your consciousness, in your mind. Conscious is probably actually a bad word because you can have knowledge without being consciously aware of it at the moment, but whatever. But in your mind, conscious, unconscious is a separate discussion. Okay. By the way, so can you know false things then? What did I say? There's two intrinsically linked components of knowledge, and one of them is awareness. And what is awareness? It, right. And so if you have an inaccurate representation, then it's not the awareness of which we're speaking, and therefore you are missing one of the intrinsic components of knowledge, and therefore you don't have knowledge. This is a very important side discussion that if you define entities based on your ability to tell the difference then you have to say that essentially all like experiences are the same or and that means that there and that means that there's no that means that a person who sees the object in front of them and a person who hallucinates a gorilla in front of them are both seeing in an equally valid sense or you can say no no there is an actual conceptual truth of the matter like what it is to see and one person is seeing, and one person is under the illusion that he is seeing, but he's not. Right? From the perspective of Judaism, many other schools of thought, it, it doesn't work if you take that first approach. So you have to say that the person who sees the cup in front of them and the cup is actually from them, they're seeing. The person who's having the experience of, a, of seeing a gorilla being in front of them, but there's no gorilla, is not seeing. They are deluded, they are under the impression that they are seeing. Something has hijacked their experience to give them the impression that they're seeing, but they're not actually seeing. And so, it is possible to be under the illusion that you have knowledge that is false, but it's not knowledge. Okay? Um, this, like I said, is parenthetical, but it sets, it sets a very important principle that applies to a lot of Jewish philosophy and especially Jewish mysticism. Okay? Now, that's one thing. The other thing is that it changes you. You are affected. You are different in your traits, in your temperament, in your disposition. If you remain unaffected by something, then you do not have knowledge of that thing. Okay? And what I said is that these things are actually intrinsically linked, which means if you are not affected by something, then I can infer that you are not aware. And if you are aware of it, then you must be affected. Okay. Yes. Why is it bad to be poor? In the modern sense of poor. I don't mean like, why is it bad to be poor back in the you know, in, in, in non-industrialized countries or back in the day before there was industry and people literally starved to death on the streets because they didn't have food. That I understand. That's not a massive. You're like, a burden on society? No, that's not much bad to be poor. Because you can't pay your bills. Why is that bad? You can't satisfy you basic needs. You're worrying about the physical things a lot more than you would have if you weren't poor. That you're getting somewhere a little bit deeper. No, I'm saying, I'm saying, what actually bother? What is, what it actually bothers people who are poor about being poor, and what is really the thing that um, drives 
people to not want to be poor. That their whole life becomes the focus of the fact that they're poor. Right, the quality of life is they can't do this, they can't do that. Okay, and I want to add a deeper element to this. It's not that those things can't happen; it says they can't do them. In other words, it's not necessarily, and this is why I use the example of honesty. It's not necessarily that the person um, doesn't have as much as the person who is wealthy. They might, in practice, in terms of goods and services, have something comparable. But that is not something that they can do and ensure for themselves. And so the lack of agency, the worry, the concern, the lack of sense of security, lack of sense of, 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 of worth, that really detracts from the quality of one's well-being. Okay? That makes sense to everybody? Everyone gets what I'm saying, more or less? Okay, now I want you to explain that to an eight-year-old. Sorry? I want you to explain that basic idea to an eight-year-old. Why? The less money you have, the less... The reality doesn't match your knowledge knowledge of how this world works. They have a whole different reality. They have a whole different knowledge of how their world works. They will eventually get to that point by living longer. That's right. But in this moment that they're eight years old, it's incomprehensible. Right. In other words, going back to the thing, they lack an awareness of money. Not that they are ignorant of the thing that exists, and not that they do not understand the cause and effect of if you have money in your pocket, you can buy candy. Right? But if at the end of the day, the thing is here, right? the idea of money being power and autonomy and, um, and freedom and all of these other things, right, which is actually what money really is, right? it's, a, it's a way of quantifying a certain amount of of social ability to navigate in a society, right? That's not something that they're aware of that even exists, and therefore they can't be affected by the sense of empowerment that comes from having it and the sense of loss that comes from not, etc., etc., etc. They're aware of money in a very um, superficial sense, which is just you give this thing which is worth because something, you give this thing which has like a number printed on it, and then they'll give you a certain amount of candy back, and that's it. And they really do think of things in like that way, right? And so the way the way Siddhis would explain this is that the reason why children are not bothered by poverty, yeah, I'm not talking they're bothered by hunger. That's a different thing. Poverty is a monetary issue, so they're not bothered by poverty. They don't feel the degradation of being poor. They also don't feel the sense of, of empowerment of being rich is because they're also unaware of money. And the rule is, the more you're aware of this aspect of money, the more these things, you're affected that way. It becomes part of your underlying motivations, part of your disposition, part of what triggers emotional responses in particular circumstances. And we can give many, many examples, but this is just one of the classic ones. Okay? So what we nowadays call information is nothing to do with awareness. And, and to put that in another way is that a fact that you do not have a sense of its context and significance is not a, the kind of awareness that's necessary for knowledge. And when you have a sense of something for what it actually is in its context with its significance, you are changed by that and you now react differently, you value differently, you're motivated differently. Would that be that? This is thus. That's why... And it has these two elements. That's why, it's, that's why it's the bridge between the intellect and the emotions. Right? It has this awareness aspect, which is more intellectual, but then it changes you, which is on the basis of emotion. 
Now, there, this works in degrees, and that's why I was like hesitant when I said consciousness. For instance, when you, that awareness becomes more conscious, you're more attentive to it, then its effect on you is stronger. Right? That's why even someone who is aware of money is not always feeling this sense of dread of being poor. It's because they're, they're not necessarily attentive to the, that aspect of money or the possibility of them not having it. But if they would be aware of it and attentive to it, then you could bring anybody into a state of panic over becoming poor, regardless of how much money they had. Which I'm not saying you should. By the way, you could do the opposite. You could bring a person into a state of great sense of power and optimism if they're attentive to the aspect, of, to the power of money and their potential to make money, right? It's like, you know, the whole immigrant story, right? He comes with nothing and then he ends up being, like, you know, a millionaire. Yeah? It's like that line in Fiddler where they're so happy they don't even know how poor they are. Right, but that's because they're not being attentive to it. But, they just don't but what if they? Right. In other words, there's a lacking of awareness. Yeah. And now that's a whole complex subject. But the point is, the awareness and being affected, they are intrinsically linked. One always goes together with the other. Okay. Well, why is this? Right? And the reason we have to ask that question is because with God, that's not the case. God's awareness shouldn't, doesn't affect a change of God. Right? God doesn't change. Right? This whole idea that right? God is unchanging. So if we say that God has knowledge, we only mean it in that first sense, that awareness. We don't mean it in the sense of being affected, being changed by that awareness. He's so, aware of everything all times. That's right. Fully. Accurately. Couldn't you just say that that's why it's not a change? No. No, 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 no. No, because the issue of change is an issue of dependency. The reason why we say God doesn't change is not because, like, it happens to be that God has to be like fixed like a stone. No, it's because the idea of change implies a kind of dependency. Right. The thing has a kind of a power over you. Right. That's why people who've been, who have been, their sense of self-efficacy has been seriously challenged. One of the coping mechanisms they might develop is to deny that others can affect them. They're pretending to have power that they don't. Okay. But God, God, actually, there's nothing that has power over God. So like, you just can't be changed by default. Okay. So clearly by God, awareness and being affected are not intrinsically linked. So why are they by people? Why does that have to be the case? Why are they linked by people? And the reason is, um, how do people become aware of something? Well, think about it. How do you become aware of something? That's right. You have to engage it. You have to, be, you have to connect to it. So the more removed something is from you, the less you can be aware of it. Okay? In other words, there's a built-in problem of human knowledge, which is, remember what I said about how when you be aware of something, you have to have it has to be in context with its full meaning? Well, so if you want to know something, you have to start sharing its context, adopt its perspective. You can't just be aware of it. You have, to, you have to, as we say in English, get to know it. And what happens is you get to know it. That restructures and recontextualizes your own being. Okay, so what happens if you're aware of evil? What happens if you have awareness of evil? Okay. In what way? In what way? It depends on your life. What, what's the effect? 
depends on which what kind of awareness you have of it. If you have an awareness of the evil being bad. Like, have you experienced evil yourself? That's the you see the thing is like this. When we say are you aware I'm gonna use like I'm not gonna use spiritual evil because spiritual evil you're gonna miss the point. I wanna talk about actual evil. Like that that every human being can really appreciate. If you experience actual like evil, you know, vile cruelness, what does that do to the person? Well, one of the things is that often um, they don't know what happened. They actually aren't aware of the evil. Like something's wrong, there's pain, there's comfort, there's no process. They don't actually have awareness of the evil. Um, I was listening, I don't want to listen to the main topic, but I was listening to a lecture by a psychologist, um, a firm psychologist, and he was saying that a lot of his patients, like he has this conversation once a week with a new client. Not every client, but it happens a lot. Um, where basically... The person expresses in uh, the first, second section of therapy frustration, parenthetically, that people always ask him if he was molested as a child or she was molested as a child. And they no, it never happened. And they're very upset why people didn't use it. That's not their problem. And then once he actually starts to explain what molestation is and how it happens and what it does to somebody, there's this look of like shock and then they break down and like all of a sudden they because the thing is remember I said about context and meaning you can have the information you don't have the context and meaning and so in fact many times people quote experience evil they didn't experience the evilness of it they like something is wrong that isn't right but the context in which what because I'm using the example of molestation just as a very clear evil in what does a what is the context in which molestation occurs? Somebody using another being for their own gratification, disregarding the fact that they have an inner world. That is the context in which that takes place. It cannot take place outside of that context. Well, once that once you become aware of that concept and that that context can be placed around you, what does that do to you? It's like. It, 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 there's no way back outside of that. You never can be the same person again. And by the way, this is not just with evil, this is with good. Now what's the problem? Do you get to like decompartmentalize your being? So all the conflicts kind of get layered on top of each other? They start bleeding into each other? So once you have these very evil frameworks in which evil can make sense and evil can happen, and you have these very good, decent frameworks in which good and evil can make sense, and they're all mixed together, and they're frankly inseparable, when you engage something good, is it ever purely good? If you engage something evil, is it ever purely evil? Everything can be rationalized, everything, and it becomes a mess. It becomes, every movement in any direction ends up having like a weird mirror image and another thing. Every time you try and like really grow in a positive way, there's some, something negative. The, the idea of like, of, of, of being um, just simply, sincerely good no longer is possible, okay? And 
because as a person, because we have to engage with that context and engage with that mean, that's the kind of creature we are, we become that. We ing- that's why actually it says in the Chumash that they ate from it, they ingest it. And now that doesn't go away. And so every single time you now apply your awareness of anything else, part of the context that you're putting on it is the evil context. And every time you look at something bad, part of the context you're putting on it is a good context. And ultimately, you can't make any steps in any one direction without you know, getting pulled back in the other direction. Okay? The, an analogy for this is like if you take like, uh, soup and all the stuff settles to the bottom and you stir it, and now you just want the broth, you can't do that. Because like, I mean, sometimes you get more broth and less vegetables, sometimes you get more vegetables and less broth, but you can't. Because that nice thing that all the vegetables were at the bottom and all the broth was at the top doesn't exist anymore. Except in the analogy, you just wait for a while and it separates. And in life, the opposite is true. They start building and reinforcing. And you know what the nice thing about awareness is and how we try to all make all of our awareness cohesive? If you give a person, and you see this all the time in class, yeah? So teacher says something, and that doesn't fit with what you already know, right? What do, what do you often do without even trying, without even intending to? So sometimes you throw it out. Sometimes you question it, but you know what else you try to do? You try and fit them together. And so you end up building a third context. And what happens when you realize that third context doesn't fit perfectly with the other two? You now make a fourth context. And we do this all the time. We're constantly rewriting our narratives and our stories and the meaning in order to get all these contexts to fit nicely together. Is it a wonder that our lives are a total mess? And this is built into human beings from the moment that they are conceived. That even the very act of generating life is a warped mixture of positive and negative contexts. That didn't have to be that way if there wasn't the eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we become affected. And now, we, there's no way to live a life where you're just, things are good or things are bad. You can like artificially try and like prop up a particular aspect of something, a particular version of something, but that requires a lot of effort and it always collapses eventually. And when you look out at the world, you see you're not living that way, other people don't live that Nobody has these nice, simple, you know, and then this was a good person or this went well. It's never that simple. On the other hand, God, because God doesn't engage in order to know, right? God doesn't have to, God doesn't have to connect to something. He can kind of, for lack of words, passively just be aware of it for what it is. And it's like, that's that. That's something to do with me. So that's how evil can exist. And therefore, yeah, like, that's that. And that's how evil, for ourselves, right? You can be aware of evil without being affected, but then your awareness is lacking in its awareness. You're not, you can have a super, there's a reason why, like, if you want to, like, maintain a certain degree of, like, sanity and purity, you might want, not want to study criminal psychology. Because you have a choice. You can either be aware of it, but then the context in which that makes sense starts to make sense. I'm not saying you become a criminal, but it's there. It's scary to know how to think like one. That's right. And, you're, and then what happens is you're actually always thinking like one, even when you're not aware of it, because it's mixed in with everything else, because we build this one chunk of a cohesive context of trying to make sense of everything. God doesn't have God just, his being doesn't, doesn't get have to get caught up in those distinctions, and so you can just be aware of them for what they are. But how could it come from him? If that's that's a separate class. 
That's not this class. This class. So, so now, how does death occur? Well, spiritually or like physically? Conceptually, like the concept of death. How did that come? How does that come about? So the reason the way death comes about is God created good and God created evil. Okay, but He did not create them the same. The way of thinking about good and evil is thinking about good and evil think about good as maturity and evil as immaturity so start with the story some people might have heard this story before but it, it's illustrative here so there was a famous rabbi his name was the briskerov why is he called the briskerov right, even though he was never actually the rav in brisk but whatever his father was a rav of brisk and uh, I mean, I was think he, he might have a short time. What was Maybe. his father known as? Brisker. <laughs> but the Brisker rub was mainly a rub <laughs> in Yerushalayim. I mean, and he might have been, I mean, most of his life, most of his, like, most of his prominence, he actually lived in Yerushalayim. Yeah. In Yerushalayim. Uh, Anyways, the Brisker rub was sitting, and he might have been a rub in Brisk for a short period of time. Um, but his real years of fame were in Israel. Anyway, he, um, he, he was one time at a meeting with different rabbis and he had a toddler got up on the table and walked across the table. And so he picked the child off, put him down. The child gets on the table, walked across the table again. This happens three or four times. And one of the rabbis is like, you know, you should like, you know, say something. He says, why? You know, you have to educate him. Right? Three simple things. The kid's walking on the table. He's getting up, walking on the table. There's a meeting going on. He keeps doing it. Like, you have to educate him. So Chaim... So the brisk girl says, have you ever seen a grown man just start getting on the table and walking around the table? He says, no. He says, okay, well, what does that tell you? That's the kind of thing kids grow out of. If I don't teach him how to daven, I don't teach him how to do mitzvahs, like when he gets older, he won't know how to do them or have the right relationship with them. That's what education is. But the fact that he doesn't have a sense of like what's going on around him and he walks on tables, like I'm pretty sure... That, you know, I'm elaborating more. I'm pretty sure by the time he's like 10, this is not going to be an issue, even if I don't say anything. In other words, there are certain things that you just grow out of. It, the, the nature of its being is it cannot last. There's a quality of being called evil. So, okay? I, we spoke about very horrific forms of evil, but they're evil just on many, many, many levels. You know, whatever they exist on, spiritual evil all the way down to like, you know, vile cruelty. But evil, by the nature of the way God made it, is the kind of thing that runs itself out. It can't exist forever. It's like immaturity. A, a human being, they mature, they grow out of it. You don't need to do anything. You just let evil be. What will happen? That's not evil. That's like just being kid. Like... No, I'm not you saying that's evil. I'm saying it has a similar quality. Then how can you explain like psychopaths? Immaturity. Wait, 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 wait. We're not there yet. We're not, we're not done yet. This is the world the way God made it. There was some eating of trees involved, fruit from trees. Good, on the other hand, is what has the exact opposite quality. That no matter how little of it there is, if you just leave it alone, what happens? It doesn't stay there. It grows. It grows. Right. So evil has a quality that eventually always burns itself out, no matter what. And good has a quality that no matter how little of it you start with, it will always build on itself. Okay, that sounds great. That's wonderful, right? And evil is also just bad. It's stuff we don't want. And good is stuff that we do want. And so, wonderful. Right? 
as long as the good and the evil stay. But what happens when the good and evil cut mixed together? Oh, so they were made separate before they ate from the tree, but they weren't. What made them together was the fact that a person ate them, and when a person knows things, and a person has to make all their different contexts and perspectives and meanings coherent with each other, they all bleeds into one big chalent in their being, and now what happens? The undesirableness of evil doesn't necessarily always die. It could. Yeah. Does it like eventually, eventually die? Not necessarily. The fact that it for sure, for sure dies is not necessarily true anymore. Because you could take the undesired. In other words, like this, like like when you're making when you're when you're mixing things, you can have something which is based takes the undesirability of evil, the negativity of evil, and some degree of of self perpetuance and growth from the good, and mix that together, and then you it's have. Yeah. And this is why, in, in, in real life, does evil just always burn itself out? No, no it doesn't. Sometimes it does. And, but by the way, they also, the reverse is true. Does good always, always automatically just build on itself out of fire? Or does it sometimes burn itself out too? It's like there, this nice correlation between the desirability of good and the propensity to build on itself forever and ever and the undesirability of evil and the fact that it burns itself out, that's, that's very nice, but that's not reality. And it's not reality because good and evil have become this convoluted mixture that's now embedded in the framework of how we live our lives. And that starts from the moment you are conceived. Do you know why that starts from the moment you're conceived? Because your parents conceived you. And they're a mixture. And you know why they're a mixture? Because they were conceived by people who are a mixture. This goes all the way back to? Yeah, so. So was Adam, so they were pure, purely good? Adam and Papa were born purely good? No, actually they weren't created purely good or purely evil. And that's what we want to get to in a second. They, they were created with a capacity to know. And that's it. And that's it. It's like they weren't either conscious of good, they just weren't conscious of either of them. They right, were not they, were not, they weren't aware, right, they, they were they had this deep capacity to be aware, but they, weren't, but they weren't inherently aware of anything. Isn't that painful to like, like have the capacity for awareness and just not? It's like, it's like, have you ever been hungry and realized you needed to eat? Then you go eat. It's like that. So they had the capacity but not consciousness? They had the capacity to be aware. To, they had the capacity to know. And then the question is, what are they going to know? But so what did they know before? Nothing. So God's like, see all these trees? There's all this stuff. That's fine. See that one? The not good evil one? Don't do that. So what's the other stuff? Well, we're going to talk about the other stuff. We're going to talk about one other tree. What's the other tree in the garden? Life. There's another thing to be aware of, which is life. Okay. So, yeah. Death also involved in that tree, or just life? No, just life. So right now, we're like the chicken soup that's mixed up all together. Yeah. And it's not something that you can separate because it's... Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Wait, wait, wait. It's not all bad. There's, there's hope. <laughs> okay. You can't get the broth. <laughs> okay. So now, there's a, there's a verse in Eo from Job, which is a great book, by the way. I highly recommend it. The author is just amazing. Created the universe, among other stuff. Well, that's uh, the only criteria, and there's a lot of other books. Yeah, but it's still pretty amazing. And the verse is, Im tzedakta, if you're righteous, what have you given him? And your many sins, what, have, what has that done to him? Basically meaning, if you're really righteous, 
you didn't give a God anything. And if you're really wicked, you haven't hurt God in any way. So what does that make God sound like? It doesn't care. Yeah. Invincible. Invincible and different. Yeah. Okay. Disconnected. Disconnected. So this is a problem is that we often um, project. So we're going to use an analogy. Okay? Because analogies are good because they, they put us in the right framework to think about things. Um, and then we can analyze it afterwards. So we're going to talk about the idealized grandparent. The idealized grandparent has their grandchildren over. And the grandchildren are grandchildren, which means they are loud, and they are messy, and they are whiny, and they are this, and they are that. And I don't know if you've ever seen parents, but how do parents deal with children? Let's talk about the pretty standard norm. You have children, and they're acting like children. And if you see... No, that only works for a certain amount of time. <laughs> That's how parents deal with children. What falls after you depends on temperament. But, but that is the case. So I'm just warning you now, that is an inherent part of being a parent in the real world. Because all the other stuff... Because remember, they're your children all the time. And, um, yeah. However, grandparents... So the parent's like frustrated because the kid is like... You want me to tell you a funny story? Of course. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I'm only tell you part of the story. Did you just not said that? We thought it was a whole story. Okay. So one time, so we used to have family, we used to have family reunions. And um, where all of the different aunts and uncles and cousins, my father's side, would get together for a week every year. It was wonderful. It was like highlight of the year. Um, and one year, one of my cousins told me a joke, which was slightly inappropriate. That's the part I'm not to tell you what the joke was. It's not that inappropriate, but it was slightly inappropriate. And I was all of, I don't know, say eight, roughly. I thought it was very funny. So we have, I mean, every night we had these big family dinners and there's all the adults around the big table and all the kids would like sit around. There's like a little table and there was the counters and it was like lots of fun. And every night we'd have like some special food. Um, anyway, so I like got everyone's attention that I wanted to say something. So everyone's paying attention to me and I stand up very proudly and I say this inappropriate joke and everyone bursts out laughing um, with the exception of my father who did not find it funny at all and proceeded to take me out of the room and um, give me a stern talking to. And so to this day, the punchline of that joke has become an inside family joke because everyone remembers this incident. Um, <laughs> but this is the nature of being a parent, is that your kids and their you know, perfectly normal kid things great on you in one form or another. Now, I don't mean to make it sound all bad, but this is just true. It is hard being a parent. You get caught up in when they're dirty, when they're tired, when they're hungry, and you're exasperated, and they're exasperated. That's what happens. And anybody who's actually spent a lot of time with parents of little kids, when you pay attention, you start to see that. One of the things you should keep in mind is that whenever you see like parents snapping at their kids and being frustrated, like, I'll never be like that, don't delude yourself. Okay, grandparents, and again, in the ideal. Okay. So the camera's like, kids will be kids. It's okay. Like, like... Like, nobody walks around with, you know, wearing, you know, like, chocolate all over their face when they're 40. Like, it's fine. We don't have to worry about it. Right. There's a certain, like, you know... What? Right. So, so the grandparents have this sense, like, they've lived life. And, like, it's such a joy having the grandchildren around. Like, the fact that they're dirty or they're not so dirty or they're loud or they're not so loud. It's like, it doesn't really matter just because, like... It's so wonderful having the grandkids around. And that, that kind of wisdom that comes through life experience and having lived life. Yeah? So here's the thing. 
Is life any less life? And if it's if there's bad stuff going on, is it any more life if good stuff is going on? And if you really are able to appreciate the value of life and living and living with others, then no amount of bad stuff takes that away and no amount of good stuff makes it better. That's not indifference. It's not what indifference is. What's that? That's being in touch with something much deeper. It's not that God is saying, yeah, yeah, I don't care. It doesn't matter. That's not what it's going It's saying the wonderfulness of being me and me being connected to you is not somehow enhanced because you happen to give some tzedakah and now all of a sudden, well, now it's worth it. Uh, because today you were in a bad mood and you snapped at your mother and so you did it a sin. Now all of a sudden it's not worth like, it, it. It's not that petty. The idea is not that God is, is coldly indifferent to what we're doing. It's that God... The, 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 it's life. That's what's called the tree of life. The tree of life doesn't have, it's not made of two opposing opposites. It's not the tree of life and death. It's the tree of life. There's no, death is just a feature of, of, of evil. So there's good and evil. Those are opposites. When one rises, the other falls. In our lives, they all mix together. And there's nothing, there's, there's, there was real living. This, this value, this joy of, of what it is to truly be alive. God is truly alive and God is with us and we're truly alive. And that's wonderful. And if things are, you know, there's a great Hasidic song from my Rebbe Levi, it's called Bidicha, which I'm not going to sing because my Yiddish is not that good and my singing is horrific. Um, but basically, the song translates as um, above is you, below is you, left is you, right is you, north is you, south is you, east is you, west is you. You, 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 you. There's a nuance here in Yiddish, which I'll explain in a second. And then he says, and when it's good, it's you. And when it's bad, it's you. And if it's you, it's not bad. That's what this verse is saying. Not like God is indifferent. But God is connected to something so much more deeper, so much more real, so much more what life is. That's who he is, and that's what he's connecting to in us. That you're, you know, whether you happen to like, you know, do a mitzvah or do an avera doesn't really change that. That's not an indifference. That's the opposite of indifference. It's being so deeply connected and having the wisdom to realize that these things, they don't change that. Right? Well, they may not change him. They change the Well, we're going to get to there's, there's, there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle. So that's what that verse is referring to. That's what the tree of life is. Now, there's a problem, though. That's all well and good when, right, going back to the grandparent example, when the issue is that the grandchild has chocolate all over their face because they'll grow out of that. That's all well and good when the child is just loud because they're eight. What if the child, and we're gonna use an example which is like from our reality, not parallel. I'm using dirty and you know, immature as a standard for evil, not because they're the same, just because they, they have at least in theory they're supposed to have the same quality of dying out on their own. What if the child is cruel? What if the child is, has bad character? What happens to that same wise grandparent? Oh, well, children, you know. Like, no, no. Now, if you have that attitude, you're just going to perpetuate. So now you have a choice. You can either abandon grandparent mode and get into we need to educate this child mode, or you have to just realize that you are enabling this negativity to perpetuate forever. 
So, yeah, this is fine. If evil is separate from good and evil's going to die out on its own and life is wonderful and a little bit of evil doesn't take away the value of life and a little more good doesn't necessarily enhance it, but good is always going to grow. And, so it's fine. Like, what's the problem? But what happens if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and now the good and evil get mixed together and evil's not necessarily going to die and good sometimes dies? And when you try to do good, you end up into evil and you sometimes through evil you end up going back to good and you, you, your life is one convoluted mess that isn't going in any particular direction. And then God comes and says, I want to be part of your life. And when it's good, it's not any better. When it's bad, it's not any worse because we're together. That's not helpful now. That's very nice when the evil's just going to die on its own. That's not helpful if the evil is such something you're trapped in. So does God let them stay in the Garden of Eden eat from the Tree of Life? He kicks them out. He says, you can't have this that no matter how good you are, it doesn't make it any better. Because if you have access to that, we're just going to perpetuate this death trap that you're all stuck in. So rather the wisdom is not the wisdom of the grandparent of it, you know, they'll grow out of it. How has to be the wisdom of an educator? How do you break somebody free of this? Are you saying that it's inevitable to have this Yeah, it's an inherent. If you eat the tree of knowledge first, then you come trapped in this good and evil getting mixed together, and then the tree of life becomes a danger. Now, what it was it? No, maybe God wanted him to do the reverse, which is eat. What happens if you eat from the tree of life? You would have just had that forever. Then you have the wisdom to realize that number one, no amount of bad can take away the value of life, and anyway, the bad is going to die out anyway, and no amount of good it makes life better and anyway the good is going to perpetuate itself. So that tree of life also had the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? No, then? no. They were, the order they were supposed to eat them in was tree of life first. Oh, so they still would have eaten from it. But, they, right. And in other words, if you first eat from the tree of life, then your knowledge of the tree of evil, good and evil is not a problem because once you're in touch with the fact of that ultimately good and evil are not what it's all about, you don't get caught up in them. Would they still have been no. Had they eaten from the tree of life, then they eaten the tree of knowledge, they would have been fine. In fact, they were, they were supposed to wait till Shabbos. Shabbos, they were supposed to eat the tree of life, and then eat the tree of knowledge, and it all been great. That seems like counterproductive. Why? So like, what God wants. I don't know. Also, like, there's a way if you read the Pesachim that it says God says when you eat it, which means, like, inevitably... How many, what was the nice simple answer, which is that there's many ways of reading the story? But let's say even in the way you're saying it, what's the point of that world? Like, it doesn't seem to make sense. Why? Because it goes against everything that we know about why the world was created. No, it doesn't. Seems to. What? What is? Why there's was the no world? There's no toil. And there's no like. There's no nothing in that. It's just like everything's fine. Always was. Always will be. Like there's no nuance whatsoever there's no in that. Avoda. There's nothing in that. There is an avoda. There's a different kind of an avoda. There's an avoda of letting things take their course. Try that avoid it's extremely difficult. I'm a parent, it's really hard. I'll give you an example of this. There's like you see the kid, the kid did something wrong, right? There's a huge avoid of realizing they're a kid, they'll grow out of it. But if you get involved right now, you're just gonna perpetuate it. So let it go. But there would have been a wrong. No, there would be wrong. There was good, there was evil. And they're evil. So they would have just not cared about the evil? No. Their attitude would have been Evil doesn't take away from the value of life and being with God. And the negativity of evil is not a problem because ultimately 
what's going to happen. So therefore, what do we have to do? What is the avoid? What is the harder work we have to do? Not interfere. And how do you not interfere? By, by no matter how much you see the evil, how much you see the good, having a stronger, more vivid sense of this higher thing. So all of humanity would have just been like that? Yeah. Now that's a very different thing. And now here's the, another problem. One of the things that we as people really like is we like when somebody tells us that the thing that we're already predisposed to is really good and important. That's why I have a bin. We're predisposed. So if I'm predisposed to the importance of like having a steady job and then I learn a specific discourse which tells me the importance about going to work, like, yeah, see? But, but that's, just, that's just part of the good and evil being mixed together. So is our, li- is our, our lives hard? Yes, our lives are hard. Each person is different. But one of the ways in which all of our lives are hard is we have a mixture of good and evil. We have to sort through it. When we, and, and we get a lot of self-worth out of succeeding in that. And then for us to come and, come and say, and through that you're feeling the purpose of creation. It's like, wow, that's really good. I like that. And then you come and say, oh yeah, but it could have been different and we wouldn't need you to do that. Then there's this kind of devalidation of everything you're doing. I just conceptually don't get what is that world. So what I'm arguing is you're not conceptually not getting it. You're, you're emotionally not attached to it. And because you're emotionally not attached to it, you're not allowing yourself to do the hard work of conceptualizing it. Now, to be fair, it's not really reasonable to expect you to it's do all that. Also. It is hypothetical. Well, that's what conce- conceptuals are right. good for. To expect you to conceptualize a whole new framework of reality that you haven't experienced, haven't thought of, and this, you know, just because I mentioned in the lecture class and then be finished right now, that's, that's a tall order. But the reason why it's difficult um, is that, as the author says in a different context about something else, we know what we experience. I guess what I'm really asking is, was there a real 50-50 fair chance of either happening? So you're, now you're asking a totally different issue. And it, we, to paraphrase another Jew, God doesn't play dice with the divine plan. Right, that's what I was saying before, that they really were meant to, in some sense, do that. No. God likes being surprised. So that is no. No. Have you ever been surprised? Yeah. Every time you're surprised, it's because you're playing a board game. No. Have you made plans in life? Yeah. You were perfectly intent on those plans being carried out. Yes. You were not interested in any other plans. Okay. And then it didn't work out that way. <laughs> yes. Same thing happened to God. But I'm not called Yaho and... Fine, so now you have a new question, but that's an answer. But I'm just saying, the pre- so that's the right, the right question is that. But the premise of your question, that God has it all gamed out ahead of time, I'm not getting into the, how the metaphysics of that theology of that work, but according to Kabbalah, and especially according to Chassid, it's just not true. The, if you want to, if you, God is not a person. But the degree to which you want to analogize God to a person, it's more like being surprised that your plan did not work out the way you wanted, and even though it's much more painful and difficult, in the long run, it turns out to be much better than what you intended. That would be the appropriate analogy. How can you analogize that to God? That's a different discussion. But the idea that God is kind of devilishly planning this out, that is not the correct analogy. So it's not random 50-50, could have gone either way. As far as God was intending, it could only go in one way. And as far as how it could have actually gone, it could have only gone the other way. And so God was surprised. How does that make sense? Different class. But if you want to bring up that topic, that's the real answer. Um. So getting back to the actual thing, had they gotten, had they internalized this idea of life, 
that transcends get the pettiness of good and evil, when they then became aware of good and evil, they would have had like the wisdom of the grandparent and evil would have died out on its own. And okay, there's a, there's a, there's a work and a toil of maintaining that kind of a mindset, being that kind of a person. But that's not what happened. What happened was first, all these different framings, all these different contexts, all the meanings of ways of, of experiencing, all got internalized, all affected them, got mixed together, and now you want to then superimpose on top of that, whatever you, good and evil don't matter, that's not a good, then that will just distort the idea. It just will be taken as, as an active license to be indifferent. So God's like, no, you can't have the sense of life. Kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. Right? This is why, just one second, this is why when we speak about, well, just get in touch with some higher thing that transcends, people have this resistance because they know, well, if I get in touch with some higher thing that transcends, then I'm just going to perpetuate this mess of good and evil that needs to be sorted out. Don't tell me transcend. That's like, you know, that, that, that's me like, that's me, that's, me, that's me perpetuating the problem. Maybe, maybe avoiding the personal consequences of it in the moment, but I'm still perpetuating the problem. Did the snake have the knowledge that this would occur? No, the snake was stupid. The snake was superficial. The snake did not. The snake failed to appreciate the difference. Does the midrash say And the satan is not as smart as God or as people. No, but if he's a messenger of Hashem, if any angel's messenger of Hashem, then he can't be stupid, right? Stupid is a relative term, right? Oh, right. For instance, you're stupid relative to the sun. <laughs> smart relative to like you know a parrot that's true relative to other animals but you are still smart relative to a parrot but compared to the sun not you personally it's just human beings in general unless you're a prophet then it's different I, I can assume that she's not a prophet that there's signs for prophecy and you know, I don't want to get too particular, but uh, you, you failed to meet some of the requirements. Okay. Well, that makes one of us. <laughs> yes. So I mean stupid in the sense that he didn't appreciate this idea that, that by, uh, by people knowing good and evil, you were actually going to create this... Um, disaster. The snake, because because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what is this? The, 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 the snake made a the snake made a miscalculation. The snake thought that you can get the benefits of you can give evil the benefits of good. Okay, that's fine. But if you but if you're mixing them together and giving evil the benefits of good, you're also giving good the benefits of evil. And is that a sustainable system? The or the what? What's the benefits of evil? Or not benefits, the characteristics of evil. It's not really benefits. That was I misspoke. If you're giving evil some of the characteristics of good, like the ability to perpetuate itself, you're also giving good some of the some of the characteristics of evil, and then you create a chaotic mess of a system. And I don't know if you know anything about political politics, but the idea that like you that creating more chaos because you can get an advantage is like a not a smart strategy because with the nature of chaos is what? You can't predict what's going to happen. So just because one or two steps ahead you think because it's more chaotic you have an advantage, you might end up far worse than you are. And that's basically 
um, the snake the snake did not realize the kind of mess that it was going to make and how much God is going to have to get involved in sorting it out and and that's why or afterwards God says okay now I'm now I'm turning you and man into having into being foes there's going to be animosity like before there's going to be animosity like man will know man and woman they'll know the greatness of uh, of life and they'll have this forbearance to good and evil and evil can live out its course and die you know it's natural death and that's that and that's wonderful and now you're going to be engaged in a constant struggle for existence all the time that's not exactly a great strategy um, but it didn't think that one through Right, but it saved us from the further consequence of also eating from the tree of life, which would then perpetuate this state of affairs forever. Because once you get in touch with the fact that there's this higher transcendent thing, then you don't feel the motivation to solve this problem. I see what you're and so now we're trying to separate them? And now we're trying to separate them. So now, God, his wisdom has to come down to deal with, okay, how do you undo this mess so that we can actually appreciate that goodness doesn't make life better and evil doesn't make life worse without perpetuating evil ad infinitum. In other words, how can you have a healthy relationship to this? This truth that your mitzvahs don't make God better. And how do you... That mitzvah is not the right word. How do you make... How do you get... How do you... It, in other words, that state of being, right? The kids, they're cute, they're messy, they'll grow out of it, it's funny, the, the wisdom of age. How do you become... How do you become the kind of person that can have that in a healthy way rather than that just be um, co-opted to perpetuate negativity? You it's have to... a step further that saying, I felt like we're saying our job is that right now to try to get back the status of them being non-piled up in context. But non-piled up for what purpose? The ultimate purpose is to connect to life. But is that something we're supposed to do now or is that a Mashiach? Well, that, that's, that's, that question is built on a false premise so no one answer okay. but what that means is that, that the way we sort these things out has to be conducive to that so how do you sort out the good and evil so this is where we get Torah and mitzvahs God gave us 248 mitzvahs positive mitzvahs and 365 negative mitzvahs what do those mitzvahs do they teach us how to sift no they don't teach us how to sift they actually sift which means like this. When you feel the desire to do something that is one of the 365 negative mitzvahs and then you don't do it, what is actually happening to reality, reality, not necessarily your experience, when it catches up to your experience is a separate thing, what is happening to reality is that some little bit of that evil is being undone, right? Like somebody says you can't like undo what you know. Well, that's what the Torah mitzvahs are doing. So taking that little bit of evil and like putting it over there. And then when you having when you do a positive mitzvah, it's taking that good and putting it over there. And when that happens, the nature of reality changes. We'll talk about in a second what, what that means in, in, in at least one sense. And when that happens, we become able to experience the sense that 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 God transcends good and evil not in a way God is indifferent but in the way of that like the wisdom of the grandparent and then by the way evil will die out on its own and the good will perpetuate forever but so the the act of doing the, the act of living life according to the mitzvahs every time you do a positive mitzvah you're literally picking up a little bit of good cleaning it off from the bad and putting it over here in the good pile 
of reality. You are uneating the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's what we've been doing ever since. Refining ourselves. That's right. Not just ourselves, all of reality. Okay, now, I would like to illustrate this. There is an interesting concept called nobility. You've heard of nobility? No? You know, noble character. Okay. An interesting thing. Um, on, a, on a gut level, on like, a, on a level of like, not I can understand it, I'm a little bit pulled with it, really, truly, could you see yourself wanting to live a noble life? You know, like the, like this, it's a proud purpose, an accomplishment of doing something worth doing. I think it depends on the person. But you, okay. Plus yeah. There's different kinds of nobility. That's fine. Okay. Fine, fine. Okay. Would a way of doing that be by going to another place and taking their inhabitants and enslaving them and stripping the resources? Would that be a way of living a noble life? No. And most of us just don't. That doesn't res like that. Just sound like what is one thing to do the other, right? Backtrack a hundred years. Was that the case? Years. Yeah, that would that would mean that that's noble. Like, it's mind-boggling to think that that people actually felt that was noble. What? How could you think that kind of savagery and nobility go together? Where, where, where did that get mixed up? That all it goes back to. And why are they not mixed up now? We've done enough mitzvahs and, and enough Jews have overcome temptation to sin that we passed a certain threshold of separation. Now, I don't mean to say that every moral notion of the modern world is reflective of that because when you're, when you're sorting and sitting, it's just sort of sifting. sifting and sorting, right? Once you've, right, it's like with, with puzzle pieces, like once you've, you, you, okay, these are all the blue ones, but then, okay, you sort within the blue ones, right? So I don't mean that everything, the, the later on in history is more inherently good everything is better but what that does mean is certain things which were which are inconceivable to us how you could conflate the good and the evil and mix them together and were just accepted as the norm that change in the fabric of reality is due to the Torah and mitzvahs and then it plays out and of course you know if you want to find some sort of historical garment to clothe it in you could do that but and What's happening is through the Torah and mitzvahs that each individual Jew does, they are sifting and sorting through the good and even, and ultimately that affects, in some ways, their experience. What happens when we reached, when we've sorted through it all? Mashiach. That is Mashiach. Mashiach is not, is not then Mashiach comes. That is what we, the event, historical event we know as the coming of Mashiach. Just one second. And then, is there any problem to experience the, the that no matter how many mitzvahs you do or how righteous you are. It's not a problem because righteousness is righteousness and it'll live on and it'll grow on its own. Evil is evil and it'll live, it'll, you know, live on and it'll live and die on its own. And you can experience seeing evil for what it is and dying and experience good for what it is and growing while connected to something much deeper because you're not caught up in this convoluted mess of it. Someone wanted to ask a question first. Yes. How do you define... Yes, yes, it's specifically those. It can't just be like, in general, like good things that you're doing. 
Well, so what makes something a good thing? Well, this is a problem, because remember we spoke about how good and evil are mixed up? So you could do an evil thing and have a measurable change for the better. That's part of the issue of being mixed. It's like, to give you an example, if you mix, the, if you mix up the markers, and so you put different ink and different... So I pick up this, I pick up the, 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 I pick up the orange marker, and then it ends up having purple ink. Because there's not consistency. And that's actually how our lives work. You can do an evil act that results in tremendous goodness. And you can do an evil act, a good act that results in tremendous harm. That's part of good and evil being mixed together. And there is no coherent way it works. It is like a constant stew. And it's dynamic. It's not even the rules of the game that you can master. And so, you know, the only way that you can actually ensure that what you're doing is really going to lead to goodness and not evil overall is the things that are going to sort out and separate the good from the evil not taking a utilitarian approach well I did this and it came out good so that must be that's a good act because that very same act can ultimately lead to evil because it's all mixed together do you think that like a lot of things that like have changed for the good in the world have happened because you know people like Laid down online and like made them happen. So, remember that line I thought about, about gar- it's clothed in some kind of historical garment? There's a whole other concept, which I'm not going to talk about right now, about the relationship between spiritual reality and historical reality. Which is that ultimately the causes are spiritual, but, but the proximate causes always, almost always take on a historical form. With the exception of things like that are that are meant to be open miracles, like the Exodus from Egypt, and so that being the case, um, it's like anything when you when you when you make a story of things linking proximate causes back, but never going to ultimate causes, you end up not fully understanding what's going on, and then you try and repeat what you what you worked in the past, and it doesn't work again because you know it's like. It's like your grandpa teaching your grandparent to use the computer, and then like they get a new computer, and like they don't under, they don't have an intuitive understanding of how like software and the internet actually function, and so they just kind of repeat the same algorithm. I know, but I'm using this as a stereotype to illustrate the thing, and so they try and repeat the same algorithm. And doesn't algorithmic process of do this, click that, and doesn't work because they don't have the sense of what underneath that made that work, and that here that same thing doesn't accomplish that. You actually need you do that a different way on this system. And so in a similar sense, the same thing that can precipitate that progress at one stage is going to be different than another stage because ultimately the causes are spiritual, which is why, for instance, at different stages in history, the practice of Torah and mitzvahs takes on different forms because it's sifting through different things. So, for instance, um, the... We, we often think of Judaism as a mitzvah, as a, as a religion, which is, which is very much in favor of, like, I'm going to use this word, although I don't like it, having a balanced approach with our physicality, right? Not, you know, some spirituality, physicality, have a balanced approach. But that's actually not, hasn't always been that way. For instance, the whole era of the Kabbalists in the late Middle Ages and the early Renaissance was, had a very negative view of, of human physical experiences. And there was a tremendous amount of fasting and self-mortification. Um, and 
the very same mystics and Kabbalists said, okay, and then that, the, the, the level of doing terminus in that way to sift out the good and evil that, that sift out has been done. So like, you're not accomplishing anybody doing those things anymore. Now, those same things are accomplished by like, getting along with people and helping them with their groceries and giving tzedakah. There's a whole letter of Alter Rebbe about this. And that, like, that's why in the Talmudic sages, there's a tremendous emphasis about you know, studying. Anyway, there's different... And, and so it's all Torah and mitzvahs, but which Torah and mitzvahs get emphasized in which way have to be in line with where the spiritual things are, and then the historical thing like, serves as like an intermediate proxy for, for that. So it's going to be mitzvahs. Now, that being said, in our era, the, the main mitzvah is um, what we would call... Um, Tzedakah, Gemilas, Chasadim, um, you know, the mitzvahs that are actually helping people in a physical sense. Not to the expense of the other mitzvahs, but as like an overall theme, right, that's something that the altar speaks very heavily about, that that's, the, that's kind of, that's the level of sifting and sorting that we're doing. Those mitzvahs have taken about a primary concern. Um, which also explains like the Hasidic approach, like getting along with people and like, you know, Let's let's have a lot of good food at the Febregen because, you know, people enjoy that. And that, the, the, whereas the Kabbalists would say that's counterproductive. You're doing the mitzvahs in the wrong way. And if you think of it in the sifting and sorting thing, but it always has to be in the framework of Torah and mitzvahs. If you just start taking a utilitarian approach, oh, this led to something good. Well, then you try and repeat. You know, it's like the, the they say in military history is that the generals are always fighting the last war, and that tends to be like outside of the perspective this perspective of when you try and have a how do we make the world better everybody looks at the past and says what did they make do in the past that worked and what did organs repeat that and then we end up with a new mess because you're not actually dealing with the underlying problem yeah so a hundred years ago we weren't actually able to it wasn't ready for Moshiach we weren't ready to have Moshiach because if it was this kind of mindset and there was such a like mixed together of good and evil that like we actually looking back Right, Mashiach could not have come. But I want to be very clear about that. that yeah, that's only looking back. In other words, had we done the degree, of sort, the degree of sorting that took, say, let's just for argument, take 100 years, had we done that in five minutes, then Mashiach could have come then. Could we have? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Does every Jew need to be involved in that sorting, or can we do it on behalf of each other? Yes and yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> every, there, there are elements which every Jew has to do. There's elements where Jews can do it on behalf of each other. And there's the fact that one Jew sorting actually enables and propels another Jew to sort. Not every Jew has to super firm for Mashiach to be here, for the man Mashiach to come. Well, so the way to think about it is like this. The instant before Mashiach comes, not every Jew has to be fully from. The instant after Mashiach comes, every Jew will be fully from. And so your one thing might be the transitional thing. But for this, a good analogy is, is the concept of a chain reaction where each thing may or may not change on its own because of the way they're linked together. When one of them changes, the change then spreads throughout everything. So you could be that one of the both. Right. So, but when it, so, so if you say that, oh, we could have Mashiach, not everyone would be religious, well, no, that's false. Oh, so everyone needs to be religious for Mashiach? No, that's also false. Your, your, your mental models are too, like, No, no, I meant, I meant what you meant. Yeah, okay. Not your mental, the mental model behind the question. Yeah. Um. Before we said once... All Sometimes your mental models are too, but not yeah, in this case. So, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> once the sifting is complete, that's Mashiach? That's Mashiach. So are we just going back to a pre-tree of knowledge eating era? 
Yeah, then there's a whole bunch of stuff you do after Mashiach comes. Because I've learned that we're going, as in, the point is not to just go back. It's to okay, go so, so, two, so two things, two things. There's after, what happens after Mashiach comes, so there's that as, as a basic answer to your question. Then there's another concept which I don't want to talk about right now, which is the idea that any time you break something and fix it, it's inherently better because of a concept called the descendants for the sake of an ascent. And so that means even though it's the same thing, in some sense it's better. One of the explanations of that is this element of surprise. The, the surprise of having problems be resolved, even if you just go back to the original, right? Like you had, a, you had things were good and then it all falls apart and then it comes back together the joy in it all coming back together, even if it's like on an objective level, it's just as good as it was before, is so much greater than had it never been broken. Okay. So one of the explanations that's given is why is it on a higher level? Because the appreciation of life after being kicked out of the Garden of Eden and having to separate between good and evil is much greater than the appreciation of life that you could have had had you never left. In addition to that, that being, there being other explanations, of, of, of how, how this is greater. There's also the fact that after Mashiach's coming, there's a whole bunch of stuff to do. We still have to get rid of the evil. The evil doesn't go away when Mashiach comes, it's just the mixture of evil goes away. So you have to like wait for Yeah, have you ever heard that Mashiach comes, we're going to follow halacha like Beishamai? Because yeah. Beishamai's view of halacha is how do you have that kind of wisdom to not get involved? How do you not get involved with the evil and just let it die on its own? Beis Hillel's halacha is how do you deal with the fact that the good and evil are mixed together? So now we follow the rulings of Beis Hillel, Mashiach comes to follow the rulings of Beis Shammai. And then after that, there's the resurrection of the dead, where there actually is no evil. And what's a world with no evil? Not an evil that will die in its own, you don't even do anything. A world where there, and therefore it's not affecting people, but a world where there actually is no evil as a concept that ceases to be. That, then you have the resurrection of the dead. How long does that take? I don't know. And then there's more and more. That never existed before. That never existed before. Yeah, that never existed before. So... There's a lot, a lot of fun stuff after Mashiach coming. So yeah, when they ate from the tree, <laughs> that was a it, big mistake. They shouldn't have done that. Um, that's when Hashem wrote this whole story. Which story? That is our lives. Sort of. Like that's when he decided, like they have to go towards Mashiach, and like. Well, I mean, it depends what you mean. If you mean Mashiach. The problem is that, that, that if you mean Mashiach in a more technical sense, you mean Mashiach in a more general sense. Sometimes Mashiach would just mean the state of redemption and everything that is entailed in it. Sometimes you mean Mashiach specifically this undoing this sin of the tree of knowledge is what I'm using in more the technical sense. That's the, the specific, specific threshold of the coming of Mashiach. So it depends what you mean. I will tell you that there is a concept that the Torah, the Torah is like... Have you, there's a concept in, 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 in literature... Uh, you take the same story um, or, in, or in plays or you take the same script and you, you, you put it in a totally different context and you don't actually change the script at all but you change the environment the background the cultural context the emotions by which the characters speak and now you have a totally different story but the script stays actually the same and there's a Hasidic discourse actually a few of them which seems to indicate that the Torah is kind of like that that the Torah would make sense in any and like the Torah makes sense the way our lives actually are but the same Torah would have worked had they not eaten from the tree of knowledge that same everything in the Torah would have made sense in that reality also but differently but how could that be if the whole sorting is the fact that there have to because sort. the fact that we the fact that we the fact that the way we experience, the way we make sense of, the way it plays out in our lives, the mitzvahs as a sorting element 
is only true because we live in a context that needs to be sorted. Those same mitzvahs in a context we don't need to, we'll still do mitzvahs after, after Mashiach comes, but they won't have that sorting element to them. And so it's the same thing when you put it in a different context, you experience it very differently. The idea of mitzvahs is this tool that we use to sort out good and evil. It's not false, but it's only describing mitzvahs in this context. And really the whole Torah is like that. That it would make sense in another context. So all the halachas that deal with death and evil would make sense in a world with, and I don't know what that's like, because like, I don't look at that world. Like, imagine a context that you've never experienced at all. So there's no evil, no death. So the, the only thing I can tell you is that the Ramban actually says even the way we break up the letters of the Torah into words is one version of the Torah, one way of reading the Torah. Maybe you could have just had all other words. No, the letters, the string of the, the, the Torah in its essence is just these letters in this order. And that's, that's it. Saying, so you could order as a Torah space story. The spacing, the spacing. So for instance, you could read the first Pasuk as Bara Shis. He created six. That's not the way we have it. By the way, when you read Kabbalah, they actually start doing that. Like the Tukunezar, the 70 facets, start reading Beratius like all these different ways with like different oh, breaks and pauses. And you start freaking out because it's like, it's not the same thing. Yeah. So, so that's like a topic for another time. So, yeah. So this whole thing of like, um, the whole idea that good brings us closer to God and evil brings us farther away is just to motivate us to sin. It's like this. A more sophisticated way of putting it would be like this. Doing mitzvahs bring you closer to God because they separate the good out of the evil. Not sinning brings you closer to God because it separates the evil out of the good. And when the good and evil are fully separated, then you can, are, then you can experience God who transcends good and evil. So you have to kind of separate the idea of mitzvahs and good. Mitzvahs are acting on the good to bring you closer to God, but it's not the goodness that's bringing you closer to God. It's the separating the good from the evil, which is the thing that God is like, I'm not letting you have this life of transcending good and evil as long as the good and evil are mixed together because I don't want the evil to just last forever. So if you then collapse that whole chain of events down, it's fair to say... Mitzvahs are good and they bring you closer to God. It's, you know, that's a summary and it lacks all the nuance in it. And then it sounds like it contradicts the idea, oh, God doesn't need your mitzvahs or God, it transcends good. And those all sound like, well, how could all those three things be the same? And the answer is because you lost the nuance in what it meant. The good brings you closer to God, the mitzvahs separate the good from you. No, we're going to say this. The, God will only allow you to be close to him, only have the tree of life fully if the good and evil are separated. What separates the good and evil? The mitzvahs. And the mitzvahs separate the good out of the evil. And the, the not doing a very separates the evil out of the good. And so it turns out that doing a mitzvah brings to good, and that does bring you closer to God. But there's a lot of nuance in that. Yeah, it's not like it's not like I did a mitzvah and now God loves me and so now we're getting along and like no, that's that's like that's the way like ch- ch- children can conceive of relationships, right? No, like that that's infantile. And if you're a child, then that's what you conceive of things. That's fine. But if you're an adult, you don't conceive of actual growth in relationships in that infantile way. Then you better not understand Torah mitzvahs in that way.
Hence, we have this class. Yes. So God is not indifferent. He just don't want, doesn't want you to abuse his great deep grandparent wisdom and forbearance. Of course it affects him. You see, effect is the wrong word here. The better word would be matters to him. Does it matter to him that evil... Does, it, does God prefer evil to exist forever, yes or no? No. No, okay. In fact, one of the great experiences of life is watching evil die. You need some evil to watch it die. That's great. Okay. So it's not like, oh, there's evil, life is so bad. Why? Why? Watch it die. It's fun. Great. It's wonderful. Now, that's all presupposing the evil is for sure going to die, and that's all presupposing you didn't mix the good with the evil. And that lies the rub. That's the problem. The problem is that we're trying to project what God originally had in mind based on our experience of reality after we messed it all up. That's like after you crashed the computer. I'm talking about within that system. Within that system, God, it's not a system. It's, it's like... A, it's like it's, within that reality that was... Of course God cares if you do the mitzvah, because if you don't do the mitzvahs, then God can never share real life with you. And you can never have the joy of watching good grow and evil die. And like, that's horrible. Why would God right, doesn't want to so keep that away from you? So that is the grandparents. That's how the, that is the mindset of a grandparent. Grandparents like, of course they have forbearance, but not about something that's going to be a perpetual problem. Perpetual problem. They set aside their forbearance to solve the problem so they can bring back that forbearance. And in terms of what you just said about the effect thing, wouldn't be Shekhinah and Gullus is directly saying this is an actual effect? Like, does affect God on some, not on the essential level, but that is an effect. It depends what you mean by Shechina, and I'm not going to answer that right now. Wait, is, the, is the analogy with the grandparents seeing like, the 